Street House Podcast, where we gather at the table to hear each other's stories. I'm your host, Angie Smith, and I am so glad that you're here. Please pull up a chair and join us. Welcome to the Retreat House Table. I am so excited to have my guest, Adrian Graves, with me today. I met Adrian when I was a student at the University of Northwestern, and she worked there and then kind of lost touch and then started following her blog years later and have connected at a conference, a local conference, when she was there speaking and have always just really appreciated Adrienne's honesty. She's always very honest and raw and very tell it like it is with the good and the bad and the hard. When I wanted to do my series on grief, she was one of the people I wanted to have because I know she knows grief and I just know that she'll be really honest with her story. So welcome to the show, show Adrian. Thanks, Ange. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. So let's start where you think, because you've had a couple, a few different losses. Let's start wherever you think would be the best place to start with your story okay. of grief. We're just a few days out from when it's the 11-year anniversary of when my son passed away. Hmm. And then I'm in about a week on the 23rd here of January. My, um, it's a one-year anniversary of when my dad passed away. Yeah, so that's probably the most fresh in my mind is my dad. Okay, so this sounds weird. I'm a 40-something-year-old woman. <laughs> I'll just say I'm 46. I love it. It's great. Um, but I was 42 when my mom passed away three and a half years ago, and it was the first time I had felt like grown-up, even though I had done a lot of adulting things mm-hmm. for many years um, as the quote-unquote standard adult, right? I've been married for almost 26 or 25 years and I have three kids and done grown up things like had jobs and I pump my own gas and, you know, I, you know, all, I, I, all these things, mm-hmm. but it was really strange phenomenon to be on earth one without my mom, mm-hmm. um, as a 42 year old woman. And then when my dad passed away a year ago, just having to navigate without picking up the phone or right. having a visit or wondering what they would think. Well, let me say that again, because actually I've still wondered what they would think, mm-hmm. um, but just not having that physical contact. And it's been a, an interesting mixed bag for me, this um, more recent grief, because <clears throat> I knew my dad was ready. Mm-hmm. He, he followed my mom pretty quickly you know, within almost three years of my mm-hmm. mom passing away. And I, you know, I, I, you and I talked earlier in our little pre-conversation, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> but about, I had these ideas of my parents moving to Denver and they moved from Phoenix to Denver to be near us where we used to live. And I was like, that's it. That's awesome. I'm totally going to get my dad in shape. He's going to eat green things. Mm-hmm. We're going to exercise together. <laughs> and he's going to be one healthy guy that lives until he's like in his nineties. Mm-hmm. And the moment my parents came to town, they walked in my front door and I was standing at my kitchen counter And I heard, like, there are some audible times that I've heard. And I say audible is like a a thought that's smarter than I could think of Mm -hmm. came into my head and heart, right? And I heard God say, they're here for the rest of their lives, and you're to love them and not try to change them. Mm. And I 
I literally turned my head up towards the ceiling and I said, even my dad? <laughs> and God's like, yes, Adrian, even your dad. And I was like, fine, fine. I can't shove veggies down his throat <laughs> if right. I tried, right? Um, it was really a gift to me because we don't know how long we have, right? I mean, there's a 100% chance we're all going to die, mm-hmm. Yeah. right? Except for we exist as if – there's a couple ways we exist. We exist as if, like, we'll never die, right? Like, oh, um, and like so my, there's, like no, – Like my children. No <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Or there's such fear that, like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die all the time. Um, you know, I have a pain in my neck. Oh, I'm going to have a heart, heart attack, attack or stroke. Yep. I'm going to die. You know, there's all of that. And instead, so we're living in this tension of fear instead of just being present in that moment. And because of a couple experiences prior, um, actually that happened at Northwestern. And then when we had a little boy named Noah, I, I had finally put living in the moment and not holding on too tightly to things or people, Mm -hmm. um, into action. Right. So Mm -hmm. when my parents moved to Denver, I took the time to get to know them, Mm -hmm. tried to get to know them. And I'm grateful I did because only six months after they moved there, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer and she died, uh, within about three years. And then my dad died three years after my mom died. So I got this chance to know my dad my dad has had all these different experiences. He has applied his own filters. He is who he is today because of, you know, it was like 68, 70 years at the time of, um, of just life experiences, different things that we hold onto or things that we can just say, you know, I'm actually going to let that roll off of me. And it helped me to empathize with my dad and to not take things so personally just as far as oh that was through his filter and that's not my filter necessarily Mm -hmm. and so since my parents had both passed away and at at first when my mom died I felt like it was like somebody took a compass and they smashed it and the needle was just spinning and spinning and spinning Mm -hmm. because I had tied in a lot of my uh, spiritual walk to my mom was just very wise. And I kind of, not kind of, I know I would go to her and be like, okay, what's God saying? Mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and she would always say, why don't you ask him for yourself? Mm-hmm. Because she would say, you have the Holy spirit. Stop. Right. You know, basically she was trying to tell me smart stuff a long time ago. <laughs> and I just kept trying to go back to her and she would say, no, you have the Holy spirit. Mm-hmm. And he, he is in you to make known to you, Everything the Father wants to make known to you, you pray about it. But anyway, I felt like this spiritual compass had kind of been smashed. And then in the three years after my mom passed away, I made a choice to get to know my dad as Bob, the guy Mm -hmm. that I've known, but like also haven't known, right? And so kind of remove your filter that you had of him as dad, removing the dad filter. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, he and I would talk almost every day. I'd I'd take the weekends off, um, (laughs) but I would call him Monday through Friday, and even if it was for five minutes, just, hey, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And kind of get to know him and know that 
it wasn't my agenda to call him and try to change things. Um, I would, of course, I, he and I had a, a banter and a rapport where I could say, you know, dad, I'm going to call you out on that. Or no, that's just ridiculous. Or dad, here's another way to think about it. Or what about this? You know, and it would make him crazy. Um, <laughs> but it was a healing time. And so when he, when his body was coming to the end of its like ability to like carry him mm-hmm. here on this earth, I had sadness because I wouldn't see him again and because he was done, mm-hmm. but also a great relief and joy for him mm-hmm. to be done and okay, you're done and that's okay, dad. I like, I release you. I'm not going to sit around and grovel that you're not here because grief only sucks for the leftovers, right? If right. we, and it's fine for them, right? They're right. great. They've moved on and grief I've never done gone to people. heaven, but I imagine it's pretty awesome, yeah. right? So like, it's all about who's left over and it can either be like so stricken that you don't function mm-hmm. or it's like, okay, well I'm here still. So why am I here? And how can I live this life to the fullest, the way that I'm meant to, I am still Adrian, child mm-hmm. of God, who is here left to still live right. out my life, if that makes sense. So yeah. it actually, for me, it's, always, it's taken the sting out of not having my parents here. And it sounds weird, but I kind of feel like, and this is new for me, I didn't feel this when I lost my son um, 11 years ago, but definitely with my parents is I feel like if I take God out of a box and I take all of the theology and the doctrine, the dogma that's ever been handed down to me and somebody told me what to believe or how to think it or how to believe it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then there is no time or space or dimension of the prayers that my mom ever prayed for me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or the truth that my parents ever spoke to me. Or the wisdom that they ever shared with me. It doesn't know time, dimension, or space. So I'm the only one who says it's gone with the finality of like their life. Or I'm the one who decides like, oh, that was a smart thing. And I can still follow that wisdom. Mm-hmm. And it, so it feels like, like it almost feels like I'm closer with them. Especially because like, I don't have to share them with all of their friends or all of my siblings <laughs> or anything like that. I get to have, you know, their love for me with me at all times Mm -hmm. um that doesn't change even though somebody even though you can't pick up the phone and call them yeah 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 Mm -hmm. right so go back you've mentioned noah a couple times and i think and you can say whether or not you think this is true it feels like the way that you handled the loss of your parents has a lot to do with the loss that you experienced with i mean you were not unfamiliar with grief after losing Noah. So I think that after you suffer a loss like you did, you have a different perspective of loss. You have a different perspective of grief. Like there are some tools now that you know how to walk through it. Would you say that's true? Yeah. Yes. If you were to even back up further, the first time I experienced death was in third grade when my friend John Martinez got hit by a car after we had all just walked home together from the bus. And I heard the sirens and stuff, but I didn't know because I was just sitting in my family room. And then 
my sister came home and said, you know, John just got hit by a car. And I was like, what? And then I, I heard a uh, helicopter. And so I wasn't, for whatever reason, I don't know if it was his family or our family because it wasn't really talked about, mm-hmm. but kids didn't go to the funeral. Right. So that was my first experience. And from that time, I had really feared death. And the next year, my friend Shelly died of cystic fibrosis. And the next year, a friend named Dustin got hit by a car um, and passed away. And it seemed like there wasn't a year that it led up through my sophomore year of high school when my grandpa died. And ironically, it was my dad who um, he had lost his dad, my grandpa. He Mm -hmm. passed away. And I was freaked out in the other room at the mortuary because I did not want to go in and see a dead body. Mm-hmm. Like it just, I, I had done dumb stuff in the eighties, like watch Freddy Krueger oh, and yeah. children of the corn and all these <laughs> horror movies, you know, like when your parents go out on dates and you rebel and you're like, Ooh, this is the worst I can do, mm-hmm. you know? And so you watch like dumb horror movies. And so all I could think about was like, I, I didn't know what to think because right. I had never processed grief, except for I planted a tree when my friend Shelly died. I mean, but to me, none of this like rectified or, or reconciled, like, what is this feeling I'm having? Mm -hmm. And so my dad walked me in and I looked at my grandpa in his casket. I just had this peace come over me. So this was my first experience. And I was 16 years old. I had a piece that, Oh, that's not my grandpa. Mm -hmm. That's just his body. Mm -hmm. And I realized like whatever it was in him that would play the violin for me or sing ridiculous songs or play rummy, you know, or make me a ham sandwich, that guy, that wasn't there anymore. And so, okay, but I wasn't still over like my fear of death necessarily, or Mm -hmm. even maybe obsession with it. And then when I worked at Northwestern the first year, my colleagues uh, one of his students passed away and we, you know, rallied around him and, um, were present for it. And I think I learned there that you show up, mm-hmm. you don't avoid it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not comfortable, but you show up. And then, um, the next year is when my RA, the very first week of leadership camp, she went in for a biopsy and was told she had stage three cancer. And so that was the beginning of my second year working at Northwestern. And I, I, I had gone to a college where you're supposed to expect miracles and I was a theology major. So mm-hmm. I was fully like, okay, I'm pray for her miracle. She's mm-hmm. going to be healed. This is the formula and but we will pray this time, way. Yes. At the same time, I had a piece of, if she were going to die. And, you know, it. looking back, it's kind of weird because I didn't even put, I didn't put two and two together, but with my father-in-law was also sick at the time. Mm. He had congestive heart failure and he was larger than life. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that year, and it was 1990, it was 97, 98, he was even on the list at the Mayo for a heart transplant and it never occurred to me that he could die. Mm. I just thought, well, he'll just get a new heart and then we'll just keep trucking along, you know, and that'll be a piece of cake. And so my RA, Elizabeth, she died on May 1st of that next spring. And then my father-in-law died on May 4th. 
Oh my gosh. And that week was a hell of a week. Yeah. <laughs> but because you're also approaching the end of the I'll school year too. I mean, yes. so you've got and huge losses and like the build up to the end of the year. Yes. And that was crazy because I had learned like you, you don't miss the end of the year. You have like mm-hmm. that's when so many responsibilities are on you. But my my team there, all my colleagues and my my RA staff and the professional team, everyone's just like, go, go, leave, go, go to South Dakota. And I left for the last two weeks. I was gone. And people showed up. And, and that's where I learned more about the showing up. So then fast forward, so that was 98. So fast forward to 2006, 2007, we had a little boy named Noah and he, um, he got sick, but we took him into the hospital at seven weeks and thought we were just going to take him in for a couple appointments. And we ended up being there for the rest of his life, Mm -hmm. which was five more months. And I, I knew at that point that life was short. I also still totally thought that my kid was just gonna be miraculously healed. Mm -hmm. But I knew Sitting in the hospital day in and day out with Noah and um, starting the blog there. Actually, my best friend started the blog. I didn't know what a blog was. Mm-hmm. That was like 2006. Like, right. what's a blog, right? Right, right. I, and I thought I was writing to my mom and dad in Arizona. So I thought she oh, said that's it up all and who she was reading it. it. That's all. Yeah, was. because there and, and then and like Jason's mom out of town. And, you know, I just mm-hmm. thought, well, that's who. That's who would be reading it because, yeah, like who else needs to know this stuff or whatever. And so at first it was just very cryptic. Like we have this appointment, you know, he has this test coming up this afternoon or tomorrow or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I realized as we got moved from the regular floor down to the ICU where he spent, I think, two and a half of the months and maybe two and a half on the the pulmonary floor because he was on a life support, a respirator. But one thing I discovered early on in the hospital was we were in an ICU unit with, I think there were 18 rooms. And it occurred to me, we weren't the only ones there. We weren't the first parents who had Mm -hmm. experienced this and we weren't the last yeah, so my friend about the blog, um, she started it, and it was very cryptic at first, but I started, like, blogging my guts mm-hmm. and my heart to God because I realized, okay, a couple other people are reading this, but either way, if these were the people sitting in the room with me, I'm not going to blow sunshine at you. I'm going to share what's real, and right. this is what's real. And I, I remember the first time I realized that hundreds of people were reading, and then even more. And and then it ended up every continent had checked in. Even some scientist in Antarctica was praying for Noah. But wow. I, I said, where does it say? Because I was a theology major and mm-hmm. I had preached this stuff, right? But I said, where does it say God will never give us more than we can handle? Because oh, it I doesn't. Can't handle this. It does not. <laughs> and it doesn't say that. And that's when actually um, that particular blog post, like lots of people came out of the woodwork and they were trying to justify, you know, a couple mm-hmm. different scriptures, but I'm like, no, it's, you know, and so that's where I just decided to be extremely candid with my experience. And I wasn't, uh, it was more of a cathartic journaling experience for mm-hmm. 
because I'd crawl up in the crib. And finally, this one nurse is like, uh, I've seen much larger moms and parents climb up in their baby's cribs, get in there. And so finally I did because I had been like kind of tiptoeing around the wires and the tubes and stuff. Mm -hmm. Obviously you don't want to unplug your kid from a ventilator. But I just started, yeah, crawling up in there and, and sharing my tears and sharing my heart, hoping that obviously the only outcome would be that he'd be healed. But every day that he was in there and he was never given a diagnosis oh, and in in western medicine without a diagnosis you can't treat somebody mm-hmm. so it was more palliative care mm-hmm. and um his body i mean it's there's a whole long story which is why i'm writing a book but um <laughs> it's just a long story and nobody had any answers and i had to my, you know, my husband and I had to wrestle with, well, what, what is death and what is life and, mm-hmm. and this perception that we have? I mean, they say, scientists say we use potentially 10% of our brains. And I think about the visual, like if you're put a visor on mm-hmm. and what you can see under your visor and mm-hmm. what is there to see outside that visor yes. up and above and beyond and behind, like, and I jokingly, because I, I am a smart ass with God. I mean, I can't candy coat that. And I was like, gee, maybe, Lord, you know the other 90% of the 10 that I don't. And I still don't see, you know, what the good could be from this, but I trust you. Yeah, I think the biggest moment for me was sitting in the hallway one night. There was a nurse that was not our normal nurse and she came in and she was messing with his tubes and he was making wonky sounds and she came up and she patted his chest and then patted the machines and she said my patient my machines and it was very patronizing and in my head as a pastor and as this good Christian girl who, um, well, I don't know if anybody would describe me as like this good Christian girl, but like someone who loved God and who Mm -hmm. was like a leader or whatever, I am cussing up a storm in my head, Mm -hmm. like dropping F-bombs and just like all all out Mm -hmm. in my head. And um, I had to go get some air. And so I went and I just like got lost in some, dark hallway Mm -hmm. in the back you know archives of the hospital and I um and I sat down on the floor and I finally said to God what I had been thinking Mm -hmm. which was are you effing kidding me Lord my kid is effing dying in the hospital and you're not effing doing anything about it Mm -hmm. and then I waited because I totally thought he was going to strike me with lightning because Theologically, I mean, doctrinally, dogma-wise, like, that's what's supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. And instead, I just had this peace come over me because he knew that I was disappointed Mm -hmm. with the way he was running the universe. Mm -hmm. He knew I was totally miffed and I had a different idea of doing things. And I was really angry. But at that moment, I was fully known. It wasn't a secret. Like, if God really is Mm -hmm. all-knowing, then he knew that I was already dropping bombs in my head before I dropped them <laughs> right. out verbally. And it was the most freeing, intimate moment mm-hmm. that I had had in knowing and loving and trusting God to be a good God up until that point, which was like, I think I was 30, 
I was mid thirties. I have no idea. I have no concept of age because <laughs> I believe that's just something we put on ourselves, right? right? So I um I waited to be struck by lightning, and it was crazy. It didn't even happen. And then I said, um, I don't know what good could possibly come from this. Mm. And then I said to God, Do you have any idea what it's like to lose a son? Mm. And that was that was a very uh, yeah, that was yeah. a pivotal turning point for me because um, the peace that came over my mind and my heart mm-hmm. and my even my physical body at that moment sitting in the end of the hallway, I can't describe, but the a beautiful thing is my son's name was Noah, and Noah means peace, mm. and in the Hebrew, it means shalom, mm. and shalom defined is nothing missing, nothing broken. Mm-hmm. which is where, you know, we named his, his blog, Noah Stephen, um, Crown and Peace. And there's just nothing I had to trust. Like he knew the other 90%. And right. yeah, I was still going for a miracle, but I I also trusted, like, I don't get, I don't understand death, but I'll be present here for this little life that he has, however long he has it. Just because I love him with all my heart doesn't mean it's going to guarantee that he stays. Mm-hmm. So from that that conversation with God at the end of the hallway, how mm-hmm. and, and getting the, that kind of peace, that I, it sounds like the peace of God that passes all understanding, how much longer yeah. then was it before he did pass? And, you know, was that a decision that you that and was, Jason had to make to yeah, take him yeah, off of life support? Yeah, we did. Yep. That was at least two, at least two more months, okay. if not more. So, I mean, people just didn't know. They didn't know how to treat him because they didn't know what he had and they didn't know what to do. And mm. there's a whole crazy story. Like his stool killed dozens of mice at the CDC, but nobody still knows why. And just a lot of, you know, it, it was, I look at it as a slippery pig in a pool and everybody's like trying to mm-hmm. catch it. And it just, that and I have to trust. So, I mean, people were offering like their private jets to take us to Mexico and Australia and scientists were working on his case in all different parts of the world. Like nobody knew anything. And I looked at Jason and I was like, when, when do you know that you've turned over the last stone? Mm -hmm. Only if the answer is that it's perfect healing, because in my mind, that was the only answer. Right. But the reality is, is how do you know you, it, it comes down to, I mean, like what God when the moment my daughter was born 15 and a half years ago, I had worked my butt off for like 24 hours all night, worked really hard bringing mm-hmm. her into the world, <laughs> right. you know, mm-hmm. and they put her in my hands and I hear again, I love her more. Mm-hmm. And I turned up and I was like, Really? Because I just squeezed her out a very small opening. (laughs) We're really in love with her. And he's like, no, I love her more. Mm -hmm. And so actually that moment allowed me to really savor even my pregnancy with Noah. Like Mm -hmm. my pregnancy with Emily was surreal because I'd never been pregnant Mm -hmm. before full term. And so I didn't. Yeah, I was just like, oh, I'm just gargantuous and eating gelato every day. Okay, <laughs> you know. And then, bam, you're a mom. But, right. like, with Noah, I was 
really intentional in my pregnancy and I was talking to my belly and I was engaged. So I don't feel like I only got seven months with him. I feel like I also got nine months with him, you know, um, where I got to connect. Yeah. So what happens is if you are on life support and a patient at a hospital, you can't leave the hospital to go home and be in home care without home care. Right. Um, so it'd be nursing care that comes and we were sent up to the floor. That would be the next step to going home Mm -hmm. and put on a, a list. I think it was maybe a year. I don't, I don't know how long that list was going to take, but we would be there for probably a year. And I said to, you know, Jason, I had a lot of conversations that you never imagined having as a parent, um, but just said, here I am, this theology major, and I believe in abundant life, and I don't think that this is abundant life. I don't think that a machine, life support is meant to be a temporary intervention. Mm Mm-hmm. And all of Noah's systems had been shutting down. Like he had a Mickey button at this point. He had he he was on a respirator. Uh, he is a Mickey like his button. His brain that... had that's a food tube in your belly. Okay. Yeah, and he couldn't eat food, and and it it wasn't that like I would have taken him home mm-hmm. and done all of this at home, but you could we couldn't go home to do this. And I just said, Jason, you know, I, I don't think that this is, I, I, we didn't want to put him on life support because we didn't want to take him off to have to make that decision is, is not really like your everyday parenting position, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I want to decide if we're going to Chipotle or mad greens tonight, not like, do I take my kid off life support? But you have to do hard things mm-hmm. and that's what we had to do and so we decided around christmas time of 2006 that we were going to remove him from life support and there are people calling in i mean like you know a real mix of theologies and different denominations of love and support but all coming in saying well no just you have to leave him on because you got to wait for god's miracle and i'm mm-hmm. like well wait he raised people from the dead like why I believe he can do that too. It it's not like like what's the magic time? And then this was also where messed up theology came in. It's like, well, if you just have enough people praying, mm. then and I'm like, oh, really? Because what's the magic number? What is the yeah. tipping point for God to be like, okay, one million three hundred and seventy six thousand four hundred twenty two people are praying. So cha ching, here's your miracle. Mm-hmm. That is effed up theology. It's not okay, and mm-hmm. it. It perpetuates the Santa Claus mentality of a God who's always been good, who's in love with us, and we're the ones who have this perception who the wrong view that we know how it's all yeah. yeah, it's the wrong view. And so, like, Lord, I trust you, and you're good, and you're loving. Whether my kid is alive or dead, it sucks because this is, like, you don't have a, just like you don't get married to get a divorce, you don't get your dream job to you know, get fired. You don't have a kid to lose your kid, but, but we don't like, if I trust that God knows the number of our days, then I have to trust that they're not all going to be 98 years and quietly, sweetly in our sleep, but it's all going to be a varying, you know, varying ages, varying Mm -hmm. circumstances. And we're the ones who get wrapped up in the how and the when, 
and the reality is it's a hundred percent chance we're all gonna die right like it's guaranteed right so like what's the hundred percent chance that we're gonna live and live fully mm-hmm. and so with Noah we um we actually I'm grateful to have had the foreknowledge that all of his systems had shut down and that he was showing us you guys I'm done here mm-hmm. I've come and I loved you and you loved me and I'm thankful but I'm done here there's a, an amazing organization at the hospital called the Butterfly Foundation and they like when you know your child is going to die they work with you to even if you have to remove them from life support um to set up the day the way that you want to set it up mm-hmm. I mean it's is that kind of a like two sides of one coin, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's you get to know and you get to create the space of how you are able to say goodbye, which mm-hmm. a lot of people don't get that opportunity. And um, I'm grateful that we did. Yeah. And, and so we made it very tender and quiet and beautiful and healing. And photographer from Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, an organization that is um, national, they take pictures of families. Um, yeah. before the, the child dies or after. Did yeah, you... they're on the blog, on my website. Um, they're well, I, beautiful. So I mean, the story is all in there. Yeah, beautiful yeah. and heart-wrenching photos. Yeah, and the photographers are amazing. I mean, I have I have a friend named Amy in Colorado who, who does it as, like, she does baby pics all the time of, mm-hmm. like, healthy little chubby Mm-hmm. loving nuggets mm-hmm. and then um she volunteers and she's like you know it's such an honor to be with those families and to capture these moments for them forever that you know sometimes you know nobody else ever sees those pictures but mm-hmm. the reason I shared them on my blog was because so many people had checked in from all over the world it did I remember she it started like minute. wildfire I don't I I can't even remember now how I heard about it because I mean it was before I was on Facebook. It must I must have run into somebody or someone sent an email. Yeah, yeah. And and so I felt like there was a community of people, almost like a whole body of people who. I wasn't trying to be um, shocking or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I was just trying to include them because they had been. They had shown up in our, in our pain, mm-hmm. and been part of the process. And it was yeah, like I think this was all kind of at the beginning of well, it was the beginning of blogs and the beginning of viral, right? So I don't right. know how it all spread except for just the compassion of people right. wanting to be, be involved. Mm-hmm. So, so, and af- if I'm remembering right, after Noah died, you had the service and released. Balloons? Doves? You released some doves. Yeah. Okay. Yep, we did doves because Noah means peace. Oh, that's right. And so then... And it was crazy because it was super cold in Denver, (laughs) and the guy didn't know if it was going to be too cold for the guy's lungs. I was like, great. The homing doves die on the release day. (laughs) Yeah, no, but they didn't. They made it home. That was good. That's good. Um, Um, So then what, you know... Because someone dies and then there's all of all of those things that you have to take care of, you know, like the business of the funeral home and the funeral and all the services and all of that 
you know, hubbub of things. And then all of that commotion stops. So then what was that like for you after in the putting one foot in front of the other after he's gone? Well, so like I said, he was only home for seven weeks before he went to the hospital. So we didn't have a ton of experience with Noah at home. Mm -hmm. Okay. But one thing we did was we left his door shut. I just brought home all the boxes from the hospital, put them in his bedroom and just shut the door for several months. I don't even know how long, Mm -hmm. but a lot of months. His room was so cute. I had sewn all of the bedding and we Mm -hmm. painted and really, really cute his little nursery. And, um, once in a while I would go in there and sit in the rocking chair, but for the most part, I just kept it shut. And then I did what you're not supposed to do, which is they say, don't do anything extreme within the first year of, you know, loved one's death. You're not supposed to move or do anything like that. Well, don't tell me what to do. (laughs) (laughs) Don't anybody tell me what to do. Um, no, One thing we did was we put the TV in the basement and we actually started just having people over and hanging out and being Mm -hmm. with humans. And um, I mean, of course, I'm still this mom, right? So my daughter was four and a half at the time. And and Mm -hmm. I know I pulled her in a little bit um, closer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we, I purged the heck out of our house. I don't know that you can't explain the mentality or, or justify any of the thoughts, but I was like, well, if I can't have no, I don't want anything except for my people. And mm-hmm. so got rid of tons of stuff. We staged our house and put it on the market a few months after he passed away and then sold it later that fall and moved down closer to friends that we actually did life with, you know, mm-hmm. all the time. And then, um, but the biggest thing that helped Jason and oh we had a big party with balloons we did we released balloons as you're thinking okay. we had a birthday party when he um, would have been his first birthday that was June 2007 and had some friends brought like the most gorgeous cupcakes and then we had balloons and just had a big barbecue and just drew people together because we're not meant to do this any of it alone right, right. on that note Jason and I went, and Emily, she actually would go to the kids' version of it, but we would go to a bereaved counseling, a bereaved parent class that Mm -hmm. was hosted by the hospital. And that was a huge catalyst for us in our healing and, again, emphasizing just we weren't the first parents and we weren't going to be the last parents to lose a child. And so we're sitting in a room of, like, there's about a dozen other parents and we got to hear their stories and the mm-hmm. stories of their kids and listen and cry together and walk together. And we're still in contact with several of them, you know, just um, that was a huge thing. And then I don't know everything that they did with the kids, but they did a lot um, like the siblings. They would do art therapy and mm-hmm. um, just to let, let them talk about their feelings and things yeah. like that. So. I think the big thing is just being present and being mindful to engage in the grief mm-hmm. instead of just, like, well, that sucked. Let's move on. I mean, right. no, it, it it's not going to do you, you know, any good to go around it. You have to go through it and deal with it. Exactly. Yeah. So Absolutely. acknowledging yeah. that people grieve differently and there are different kinds of loss. Is there advice that you would offer to someone who's 
facing grief, trying to walk through grief or trying to walk alongside someone in their life who's grieving? Mm -hmm. For both people is one, you don't know what you need, Mm. but you also don't know how to say it. So you, and then people are saying, I'm here for you, whatever you need, let me know. So what I'm saying is they don't know, Mm -hmm. um, but they need you. So just show up and it's not contagious. Right. Just show up. Mm-hmm. And so like one thing our church did was they actually showed up and they brought us meals for five months. And there are people we didn't even know. I mean, it was a young church. Red Rocks had just started. There were college kids that showed up to bring us meals. Uh, I can tell you when I was in college, I was not thinking about bringing some sad people a meal. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they were just like those are some mature, precocious students, right? right. And selfless. Like that wasn't even on my radar. And so, yeah, we met, instead of them just dropping off the meals, we'd say, will you sit with us? Mm. And they would. Mm -hmm. It was great. And that's actually how we did church um, for five months. So showing up and getting over your own fear of death or Mm. bad things happening, because the reality is, is, we are all going to die and we're all going to experience bad things. And somebody's worst is not another person's worst, right? So, like, it's not a competition of which worst sucks the worst, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. not, it's just about being present and showing up mm-hmm. and being there. And you don't even have to say anything. Mm-hmm. But at you least can let them know that they are seen. But yeah, exactly. That's mm-hmm. it. Enter into it. Don't turn around, walk away. Because, I mean, we do, not not in a legalistic way, but like whether it's, you know, karma or it's we reap what we sow. So, I mean, we're all going to have something hard that happens in our life at some point, and we're not meant to do it alone. So be present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Well, thank you so much, Adrian, for coming on and for sharing your story and all the, I'll get all your blog information and websites and everything. And I'll put it in the show notes. So if anyone wants to find out more or read blogs or follow you, they can, they can find that information there. Thank you, Angie. Yes, that would be excellent because I'm, I'm compiling some of this into some um, essays and putting it into kind of a memoir form of a book. So yeah, yeah, I would love you know, for people to read along. Great. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Retreat House podcast. Any links mentioned in the show can be found in the show notes. We want to thank Isaac Turley for his music at the beginning and end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, and we'll see you next week on the Retreat House podcast. Thank you.